Well, once again, welcome. My name is Chris Lane. I'm the senior pastor here. I have the privilege of, of serving here with the team. And uh, we have been looking at a, the whole business of community. We have a new series. We're about three weeks into it. It's called Mosaic and uh, Rethinking Community. And we have gone on various little excursions, but we have been looking at uh, the, the book of Colossians and, and in particular chapter three, which has been a bit of a... A, a, a backbone to what we're saying, and so today is no different. So it'll come up on the screen, but please, by all means, if you have an, I, uh, if, if you have an iPhone or Blackberry or whatever, uh, or a Bible even with you, let's turn to Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, and we'll get straight into it. Father, just help me to communicate effectively and clearly in Christ's name. Colossians 3, 16 to 17 say, Let the words of Christ, in all their richness, live in your hearts and make you wise. Use his words to teach and to admonish and counsel one another. The admonish thing I slipped in there is actually out of the, the NIV version which you may be looking at. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do, let it be as an ambassador of the Lord Jesus, all the while giving thanks through him to God the Father. Now, there are four main elements there, and we're going to be looking at them over the next two or three weeks. There's, if you like, the bias for God's Word, the Bible, getting into that and letting that read us as much as we read it. There's a, a bias for community and togetherness and, and accountability, actually. You know, opening our lives to one another so that we can, we can be real and authentic and grow up. Uh, there's the third thing, and this is what we're going to major on today, uh, the bias for worship, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God and with, with thankful hearts. And then finally, there's this bias for action. You know, the, uh, the Christian faith is more than just words. As, as I've said many times, G.K. Chesterton described it as poor, talkative little Christianity. Um, he's a Christian. He was a Christian, I should say. Uh, but there's, there is a bias for action in the scriptures. It's something we do, not just that we something we talk about. And uh, so we're going to look at the, the third of these things, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. You know, I've often uh, thought, and, and when I was on retreat this week, I have deplored my, my, the ease at which I get distracted. Does anybody here, whenever you're trying to get close to God at home, you know, when you're having a quiet time, as we evangelicals call it, anybody find their mind wandering a bit? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I see your minds wandering when I'm preaching, which is really disconcerting, you know. But uh, yeah, you know, this week was no different for me. I went off down to Hampshire and on my own, and I, I did this uh, little retreat thing. It's a sort of silent retreat. I try and do it once or twice a year. I always find it uh, challenging. If you follow my tweets, uh, at Rev Chris Lane, then you will know that uh, uh, you know, the spirit is willing, but the flesh creeps with this thing. I find it so tough. One little indulgence, this is a story against myself, one little indulgence I allow myself is that I do watch the news on the, the TV because I'm a bit of a news junkie and I, I want to know that the world is still there you know, since the last time I watched the news, you know, whatever. But anyway, I'm stood there, I'm just about to go to bed and I just flip on the news and uh, the TV, it's unfamiliar to me. The next thing I know, I've, I've got a shopping channel on. Well, I never watch shopping channels. 
but they had a rather nice little sort of uh, iPad type thing, you know, 179 quid, it seemed like a bargain. And I stood there for at least 10 minutes like this, and before I know it, I'm reaching for my credit card. And, and I, I stopped myself at that point, and I thought, what is the matter with you, Chris? You know, you're on a flipping retreat and you're buying things on, on the shopping channel. This will kill me if I get home and say that. She says, how was your retreat? And I said, well, I, I bought a computer on the shopping channel. I mean, it just doesn't sort of compute, does it? You know, so, so I find myself needing to not just think about what to do in Christ or what we can do in Christ, but I need, I need to press into Christ. And of course, that's what worship does. Sing psalms and praise with thanksgiving. It moves us from the temporal and the, and the moment. And there's nothing wrong with the moment in Christ, but it moves us into that place where we transcend the normal and the ordinary, where we move into the presence of God. And that really got me thinking while I was away about how we, as God's people here at Vineyard, really need to honor that process, really need to seek that out, really need to major on that. So that's the background to this little, little talk. And now one or two of you will be putting it together. I'm talking about worship. So rather than just hearing me talk and then us going home to lunch, you know, it needs a response. So that's why I asked the worship team's indulgence and said, look, would you mind coming up after the word? Because we will need to, to worship after this. We will need to do something together and express that in response to the word. So they went with that, and it, was, it turned out pretty exciting at the first service, but we'll see what God will do here. So when we come to the subject of worship, when we can consider that the, the purpose, what's behind all this singing of songs and the rest, and of course there's more to worship than singing songs, but we, we begin to reflect upon how things got us into the place that we are now. For example, I think the thought behind this is certainly when I was on retreat, I was thinking about our darkest hour. You know, what, what is your darkest hour to date? And I don't depress anyone, but, but one thing we all share is that as human beings, as people who uh, are on the face of this earth and in need of God's grace and forgiveness, you know, our darkest hour was what, what they call the fall. Uh, you know, you, you read about it in the book of Genesis, don't you? And, and Adam and Eve and the apple and the snake and all this kind of thing. Uh, and, you know, the, the consequences of the fall, the consequences of our turning our back on God and saying, you know, thanks, Jose, but no, thanks, Jose. Uh, 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 deciding that we knew better than God, that, that, that rebellion as it is. There were a number of consequences, for example, and you'll know this already. Uh, the, the work we do had a, a measure of curse placed upon it. You know, I, I think sometimes we go a little too far with that. We tend to think that work is a curse. Actually, work is not a curse. Work is part of God's blessing. We, God is a worker, and we were made to work, and, and it's part of God's blessing. But as a result of the fall, that which should have been something that was always fulfilling, always life-enhancing, always satisfying, always had a sense of purpose and progress about it, suddenly was blood, sweat, and tears. And, and you know, if, if you come home at the end of the day with a sense of purpose and, and, 
uh, having a sense of fulfillment, well, God bless you. Many do, but certainly not everyone. It's just a chore and a worrying one at that, and have I still got a job, and all this kind of stuff. There was a curse placed on something that was a blessing. The second thing was the enmity. The, the, we started falling out with one another. The, you know, the, the woman blamed the man, and the, the, you know, the man blamed the woman, and then the woman blamed the snake, and the snake blamed God. You know, and it was just like everybody was blaming everybody else except themselves. And the whole thing, there was just prickliness, to use a kind of slightly quaint expression, between everybody. The whole thing broke down and disassembled. The third thing, of course, we might, we might think it was the most drastic and dramatic of things was that death entered in. Jesus, you know, our Father said to us, if you, if you disobey me in this, this single matter, you will die. This will not work out well for you. Watch my lips. But, you know, we said thanks, but no thanks. And death entered in. That, many would believe, was the worst consequence. But actually, I believe our darkest hour was that we were banished from God's presence. Banished from God's presence. And actually, interestingly enough, in, in chapter 4 of the book of Genesis, we see Cain, the first recorded murderer, who's just murdered his brother, being found guilty and being punished for that. And he is, you know... He is sent from God's presence, and he, he protests. Genesis 4.13, Cain said, my punishment is too great to bear. You have banished me from your presence. You have banished me from your presence. It's an interesting thing because, you know, I don't know this, how can I know, but I kind of imagine that in Cain's day, you know, a generation on from Adam and Eve, there was still what I call an afterglow of God's presence in the land. A little bit like those long summer evenings, you know, where the sun goes down at, you know, midsummer at, you know, quarter to ten even, but it's still at light and you're out, you know, on the patio with your friends having a beer or whatever at quarter to eleven and there's still a glow in the sky. This was a stage, a phase where I believed there was still a glow of God's presence on the land. It wasn't like it was, but there was still the remembrance of God's presence. But it was waning. It was waning. The, the darkness was coming. Of course, the scripture now says in the New Testament that we all of us are children of the, of the dark. And actually, in Christ, what's happening is that it's getting lighter. We're taking hesitant steps, blinking against the light and the glory of God that is beginning to, like a new dawn, break into our lives. But our darkest hour was quite literally that. It was that. It was the removal of God's presence. The removal of God's presence from his people. Now, God has spent a lot of time and indeed spent himself in Christ dying upon the cross in restoring that and putting that, that terror to right. And we're just going to quickly look at three points and then as I say come back into worship talking about this this whole presence thing his people over against all others his people are a people marked by his presence marked by his presence it's a distinctive you know, one of the premises about this series, Mosaic, is that, that there is an enormous amount of fragmentation 
going on in our society. Even our politicians are, are bemoaning the fact that Britain is broken and that there's no social cohesion anymore. So we're all being encouraged to think about big society. It's all an attempt to, to patch, to put plasters and sticking plasters and the rest on, on a society that's beginning to fragment. And so all sorts of community groups are coming together and the church is one of many community groups. There was a little, little post on, on Alan Scott, the pastor of Causeway Coast's uh, vineyard. He put a little tweet and he said that, there are, that they are seeking to partner with 120 other organizations in their own city. 120, well I'm sure if you were to go to Yellow Pages or Yell.com or whatever it is, there are any number of charitable and good works organizations in the city. There is an enormous plethora of people who are trying desperately to underpin community. But the church, whatever we might do through our glorious feed ministry, through our children's ministry, through our flicks ministry, through our willing cooks ministry, through, you know, the, we've got 80 pages on the website of stuff that we're into and involved in. Whatever we do, the thing that makes us distinctive, the thing that makes us stand out is the presence of God. Exodus 33 verses 14 to 16 says this. Then the Lord replied. This is a conversation he's having with Moses. The Lord replied to Moses, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And Moses latches onto that. Latches onto that. Just like a child who's fallen into a duck pond, you know, you're feeding the ducks and it happens to every child that will sometime or other, they slip and they fall in, splat, splosh, and all the rest of it. There's shock, there's horror, there's a mad scrabbling to get to the size, there's tears, and it's like Moses is like that. Father said the magic word here, my presence will go with you. And he latches onto that. And he says, he says, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us out from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? It's the presence of God in this place and among us and on every other Bible-believing, Christ-centered church on the face of God's earth, that makes us distinctive. Doesn't matter what else we do. We may do it fabulously. We may get mentions in Parliament. And I think two years ago, we got a mention in Parliament, didn't we, Andrew? Our feed ministry, would you believe it? We got mentioned in Parliament, flipping heck. All that's great, laudable. But the most precious thing about this community is that we love the presence of God. We make time for the presence of God together. We press in to take hold of the presence of God. As one guy said years ago, one preacher I heard, he said, we seek the face of God before we seek the hand of God. We want relationship with him before he want, we want him to do things. That's a great way of summing it up. The second thing, if we're a people marked by his presence, made distinctive, it's a, a, that we are a people made for his presence. It's not just that 
somebody said, you know, it'd be a really good idea if we sought God's face. Why don't we try that for a while? Actually, it's what we were made for. We were made for God's presence. That was always God's intention. Right back at the beginning of creation, God made man for him, and he gave himself to man. We see it, of course, in the cross. Nothing's different from God's side. He's still giving himself to us. But we are made for his presence. Jeremiah 32, 38 says, thanks to him, they will be my people and I will be their God. We are made for each other. You know, I've had the the privilege of of working with a number of people in this church who are now in very long-term relationships. You know, very, people who've been married for 40 years and plus. And it's a great joy. And there's also, you know, always every single year there's a spat of marriages. And sometimes, you know, people look like they were made to be together. Sometimes it's funny because they can be as different as chalk and cheese. You know, you and your partner may be as different as chalk and cheese, but there's a complementarity about it. There's something works, something fits. You were made for one another. And it's right that we celebrate that. And we, ce- we celebrate longevity in marriage simply because it, it, it says they were made for one another. They fulfill and complete one another. I often say how I believe God looks upon each and every one of us and knows what, will, will, what gift will make, will, will work for us, what gift will bless us. And for many, but not all, for many people, you know, God looks apart, looks, God looked upon my dear wife, Fliss, and said, how can I really bless Fliss? <laughs> you know what's coming, you know me too well, don't you? What's the matter with you? Go and get it out before you start mocking me. <laughs> God looked at Fliss and said, how can I really bless Fliss? And he thought for a moment, he said, what she needs is a Chris. I'll make her a Chris. That'll bless her socks off. There's a complementarity. There's something that fits. Does it work all the time? No, it needs work on. Just as our relationship with God as a community and individually needs work. If we're always just running into God's place and saying, oh God, give me a parking space. Or, oh God, don't let me be late. Or God, let, you know, let me get the kids to school before such and such. If it's all about that, which is part of it, I'm, I'm not dissing it. But if that's the sum of our relationship, it's not much of a relationship. There needs to be time, both as a community and as individuals, that we set we set a little bit of time just to be with one another. To sit down with a cup of coffee. To, to say to one, how was your day, darling? To, to set aside times of intimacy. And you know what I mean by that. These things, these things add inestimable value to a relationship. It's just the same with God. So if we, were, if we are a people who are marked by his presence, we, were a, we are a people who are made for his presence. And finally, we're a people who are moved by his presence. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and join me here because we'll move straight into worship. And that's why we've done it this way. 
We are a people who are moved by God's presence. You know, uh, there are many places we could look at in the scriptures. This particular little quote that I'm going to get Tim to throw up on the screen. Uh, I have the great good fortune, and indeed I, I believe it is good fortune, that early on in my ministry, and, and uh, you know, I blush to say it, but this year have, in, in September I've been in full-time ministry for 30 years. But early on in my ministry, I, I came across this verse, and there was... There was something about it that just broke me. And, and I needed to be broken, to be honest. It's not necessarily a good thing to be broken by God. It can be quite brutal at times. But, but I needed to be broken because I, by personality, you know, I'm a pretty kind of driven sort of person, you know, setting goals and agendas and all this kind of thing. You need to push things along all the time. But very early on, there was something about Psalm 95, the whole of it, but, but this little bit in particular. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are his people, the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. And I remember, I probably read it many times, but as I say, right at the beginning of my ministry, when we were up at Antonine Gate, I can remember one occasion, I was on my own in the house, and there was, I was reading this, and it, something stirred within me. I had many concerns. I was trying to earn a living and build a church and do this and do that and do the other. But suddenly, it was as if God just said, hold up a minute there. Time out, son. Time out. And he just began to kind of soften me. And I'm not embarrassed or ashamed to admit it that I ended up on the rug sobbing my eyes out. I just kept reading it over and over again. Come, let us kneel down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For He is our God. And we are the people of His pasture. The flock under His care. This community, whatever else we do together, we must be a people who are hungry for his presence and who press on through together to be in his presence. Because it marks us, it makes us, and it moves us. Let's all stand now, shall we? Thanks, sir. Yes, Lord God, come, Jesus.